History buffs of Reddit, what is one of the most fascinating stories you've learned that no one seems to talk about and can't be found in textbooks? The Lake Penure Disaster Until 1980, Lake Penure was a small-ish, freshwater lake with a maximum depth of about 10 to 15 feet, located in southern Louisiana. Locals mostly used it for trout fishing, and it also had a canal running 10 miles from the lake southward to the Gulf of Mexico. The main industry of the area was a massive salt mine that stood below the ground, partially underneath the lake itself. Thing is, natural salt deposits like this often coincide with oil reserves, so it wasn't out of the ordinary when oil companies came searching. In November of 1980, Texaco had set up a rig in the lake and was doing some exploratory drilling, hoping to make bank. Little did they know that one of their triangulation coordinates was slightly off, and so they had incorrectly guessed the location of the salt mine below their feet. Their drill bit punched into the roof of the salt deposit about 400 feet earlier than expected, and water began to drain slowly into the salt. And what happens when salt meets water? It dissolves. As the water dissolved more and more salt, it made more and more room for water to be sucked down, which in turn dissolved more salt and made more room, setting off a massive chain reaction. The oil rig on the surface keeled to the side and collapsed, its workers barely escaping before the water pressure became too much to swim through. The remnants of the rig were sucked into the bottom of the lake in what had turned from a tiny hole to a whirlpool, the force of the water shearing away soil and making a bigger hole as it went. The salt mine at the time was fully staffed with workers 1,500 feet below the ground, who were going about their daily shifts in the mine without any knowledge of the events taking place above them until they saw water dripping through the roof of the tunnels. Thanks to well-rehearsed evacuation plans, none of them died before the mine was flooded, but water is just about the worst thing you can see in a salt mine. The whirlpool on the surface, having eaten the rig, began to suck down the entire contents of the lake itself, including 11 barges, various small boats, and yes, the poor trout. The whirlpool grew into a maelstrom, its pressure increasing and in turn building more pressure by creating a bigger and bigger hole, eroding more and more of the salt mine. As it pulled down the entire lake, the water began to shear away at the shores, creating landslides and tearing trees out by the roots. Many of Jefferson Island's 100-year-old pecan trees were lost to the maelstrom, along with several local homes that sat on the shore of the lake and were ripped out by the foundation. The local botanical gardens was destroyed entirely as the soil underneath it was eroded in the span of only a few hours. Compressed air inside the mine finally exploded out through the mine shafts, quickly followed by a 400-foot geyser erupting from the mine's entrance. Not only did Lake Penure drain entirely into the mine, dragging 64 acres of destroyed land with it, but the pressure was so great that it also reversed the direction of the Decom Canal. The ocean water from the Gulf of Mexico rushed northward through the canal to fill the Penure Basin, temporarily creating the largest waterfall in Louisiana. The chaos didn't end until the pressure equalized about a week later. When things had finally calmed down, the lake had changed drastically. Its maximum depth was now about 200 feet, as opposed to its previous 10. Its shoreline had expanded, chimneys sticking straight out of the water where the houses had once been. Nine out of the 11 barges claimed by the maelstrom floated back to the surface, although two remained somewhere in the ground below. The botanical gardens were gone, and many of the local trees. The salt mine was temporarily shut down, and although it did reopen, it was finally closed permanently in 1986. Texaco had to pay $32 million to the salt company and a further $13 million to the gardens. Miraculously, the only casualties of the disaster were the trout. The most important difference, however, is that today, 
Lake Penure is now a saltwater lake with ocean species, 10 miles away from the ocean itself. All caused by some bad numbers and a 14-inch drill bit. Leave your mark on history and subscribe to Am I the Genius and Am I the Jerk linked in the description below. Be sure to like the video and turn on the bell so you never miss an upload. Thanks for watching! I wish more people realized how truly post-apocalyptic life after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire was. In Britain, we had large cities made of masonry, aqueducts, running water, lawyers and accountants, central heating, financial derivatives, a thriving civilization. After the collapse, we lost all of that. The plumbing and concrete broke down, nobody knew how to fix it. People built mud huts inside old stadiums and amphitheaters, using them as forts. That's some Diamond City stuff right there. It took centuries for the economy to recover to the point that currency was needed again, rather than bartering. A side point, back in the day, York and Thebes were in the same country. That still blows my mind. Starfish Prime That time when a space nuke could be seen from Hawaii and the resulting EMP knocked out streetlights in Waikiki. Almost no one I know knows about this, and it wasn't in any school books we read. You'd think a space nuke to see if we could blow up an asteroid belt would make it into textbooks, especially when tens of thousands of people witnessed a sun in the sky at nighttime. The quote, May incident in World War II. American submarines were very good at getting away from Japanese surface ships. This was because the Japanese thought American submarines could only reach a much shallower depth than they actually could, and they could never set their depth charges to these deeper depths. Congressman Andrew May decided it would be a good idea to hold a press conference announcing this fact. From then on, the Japanese set their depth charges to these deeper depths. Quote, Vice Admiral Charles A. Lockwood, commander of the U.S. submarine fleet in the Pacific, estimated that May's security breach cost the United States Navy as many as 10 submarines and 800 crewmen killed in action. He said, I hear Congressman May said the Jap depth charges are not set up deep enough. He will be pleased to know that the Japs set them deeper now. Loose lips sink ships. Voyagers who worked for fur trade companies lived gross lives. Since they spent most of their time in a canoe with limited supplies, they made do with what they had. Gross stuff below. They were often missing teeth, so when they drank tea, they would shove a chunk of maple sugar in their teeth gaps and drink tea through it. When the tea was done, they would remove the sugar chunk, wrap it up, and save it for later. The number one cause of death for a voyager was complications of hernia because they carried heavy cargo on their backs. The average sack was 90 pounds, and they would make a contest out of who could carry the most. Often three, and for the show-offs, four packs. That's 360 pounds of cargo, so of course, guts would herniate. They would tie their sashes as tight as possible around their stomach to keep all their internal organs in place. Since they tried to keep limited supplies so they could carry the most cargo, they would often use their toques as bowls. They would wax the yarn to waterproof the hats, so they would eat out of their hat that had hair, sweat, skin, and probably bugs in it. They didn't pull over to the shore to go to the bathroom. When you had to go, you would go over the side of the canoe. This applies for both number ones and number twos. So if you had to poop, you were pooping in front of the rest of your crew. Their hygiene was awful. They often would not bathe or clean themselves up, as it protected their skin from bugs and the sun. When they got close to a rendezvous point, they would somewhat attempt to shave and clean themselves up. They may do with what they had, but learning about them has made me appreciate modern amenities like showers, toilets, and access to health and dental care. Edit, holy crap, I got gold! 
I know this is cliche, but thank you. Here's some quick fun Voyager facts as a thank you. They paddled about 50 strokes per minute, and the person who could carry a tune and played the fiddle were paid the best. They used music to keep pace and move faster. In Canada, there were two main fur trade companies, Hudson Bay Company and Northwest Company. Those two companies hated each other and would get in fights all the time. Turf wars were a real thing. They were often under 5'7", because having tall people in the canoe made it difficult, and it was harder work for tall people because it took more effort to swing the paddle down. And lastly, this song, Chevalier de l'Etable Ronde, translated to Knights of the Round Table, was their jam. It's about when they die, they want to be buried with all the wine and their head under a tap. Gross party animals to the end. It's a bit more recent, but I love the story of Gander. After 9-11, all the planes were grounded. Almost 7,000 people, which was about 66% of the local population, were forced to land in this tiny town of Gander, Newfoundland. The whole town worked together to make sure all the passengers would have everything they needed. The local ice rink was filled with frozen food that people donated. You couldn't find a closed door in town for stranded people to take a shower or just talk. Once the grounding of planes was lifted, those passengers pooled their money together and created a scholarship for the people of Gander to use. This is one of the greatest acts of kindness that I can view in history. To this day, Gander is the only place outside the United States where they have a piece of the World Trade Center. This is the story of the biggest troll who ever lived. In World War II, there was a Spanish spy named Juan Pujol Garcia who approached the Allies to work for them. When they refused, he approached the Nazis, and they accepted him, giving him the codename Arabel. Once he earned credentials working as a Nazi spy, he approached the Allies again, this time getting a job as a double agent, codenamed Garbo. This is where it gets unbelievable. He fed the Germans a combination of misinformation, true but useless information, and high-value information that always got to the Germans just a little too late. He even started a spy network consisting of 27 sub-agents of his own. Keep in mind that not a single one of these sub-agents existed. They were completely imaginary. But regardless, he submitted expense reports for them and had the Nazis giving him money to pay their salaries. At one point, when he had to explain why some high-value information got to the Germans late, he told them that one of his spies had died. He actually got the Germans to pay the imaginary spy's imaginary wife a very real pension for her loss. Not only did his false information get the Nazis to waste millions of dollars, but he was also instrumental in convincing the Nazis that the attacks on D-Day were just a diversion, and the real attack was yet to come, keeping vital German resources away from the front lines. He is one of the only people to ever get an Iron Cross from the Germans, which required Hitler's personal authorization, since he wasn't a soldier, and an MBE from King George VI. The Battle of Atu It was the only battle of World War II fought on U.S. soil. Atu is an island in the Aleutians. The Japanese invaded it, intending to… who the heck knows, it was far too remote to serve as a staging for an invasion of the mainland. The American soldiers who were sent there had originally been slated to go to North Africa. They were sent to the Arctic, in the spring, with gear meant for fighting in the desert. They lost more men to the elements than to the Japanese. I'm a nurse, and a few years ago I had a resident who was in this battle. To his dying day, he was reluctant to talk about it, even 70 years later. What I shared here is all he would tell me. Peter the Great often forced dwarves to get married, and him and his friends would get drunk and attend the wedding. 
He had a fascination with dwarves, and he once forced someone who had made him angry to marry a dwarf. Edit, since this post is getting a lot of attention, I thought I'd share that Peter basically had a fraternity, and it was called the all-joking, all-drunken synod of fools and jesters. They would drink and party basically all the time. You can find more about it on Wikipedia. During World War II, the Japanese outfitted special planes, some were designed to be launched from submarines, with enough range to reach the west coast of the United States. The goal was to use incendiary bombs to start wildfires in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. One pilot, Nobuo Fujita, successfully dropped his bombs over the forest near Brookings, Oregon. Fortunately, a storm the night before had dampened the forest, and the fire started by Fujita's bomb was quickly controlled by the Forest Service. 18 years later, in 1962, Fujita returned to Brookings. He brought with him his family's heirloom, a katana that was over 400 years old. Fujita apologized to the townspeople for his actions during the war and revealed that if the townspeople demanded it, he would ceremoniously kill himself, commit seppuku, with the sword to make reparations for his actions. The townspeople would have none of it. Fujita was made an honorary citizen of the town and returned to visit it several times during his life, including one trip to plant trees in the forest he had bombed decades before. After his death in 1997, his daughter returned to Brookings and scattered some of his ashes there. The Fujita family katana is on display in Brookings, after being given to the town by Fujita as a token of friendship. I may not be too much of a history buff, but I really like the story of Leo Major. Leo was a Canadian soldier serving in World War II. He was assigned to the division in charge of liberating the Netherlands. One day in the summer of 1944, he was alone on reconnaissance duty when he saw two German soldiers walking nearby. He killed one and captured the other, then captured their commanding officer and an entire German garrison after killing a couple more. He came under fire from other German soldiers and just kept walking. He single-handedly captured 93 German soldiers. In February of 1945, a truck Leo was in hit a landmine. He broke his back, a few ribs, and both ankles, and was told he would be discharged. Leo couldn't give enough craps, however, and a week later, he snuck out of the field hospital he was in and stayed with the Dutch family. After getting better, he made it back into his battalion and volunteered to do reconnaissance on the city of Svola. Once he departed, he decided to take the city himself. He convinced a German soldier to relay a message back to the German army, then through the night ran around the town making all the noise he could. He shot bullets, threw grenades, captured German soldiers, burned down the Gestapo, and cleaned out the SS building in Svola. His tactics were so effective, he convinced the German army that the entire Canadian army was invading the town. So by the morning, the town was free of Germans and the Canadian army just marched in. He has a street named after him in that town now. From Wikipedia, he declined the invitation to be decorated because according to him, General Montgomery, who was to give the award, was quote, incompetent and in no position to be giving out medals. I like the cut of this guy's jib. Diarrhea was so widespread and common in the 19th century that people would develop opium habits because opium makes you constipated. Edit, well that escalated quickly, and for the exact diseases and reasons that people had diarrhea, I can only say that the 19th century was gross and nobody knew proper sanitary practices. I'm glad you guys all enjoyed debating Imodium, and today I learned Imodium is made from opiates. If you want to learn more about opium, diarrhea, or the combination of the two, then Google it, because I'm busy and Google has better resources than I. I've told this story before, but it never fails to amuse me. Strap in, boys and girls. 
It's time to learn about that time in pre-revolutionary France where bleeding from your anus was a fashion statement. In early 1685, King Louis XIV of France developed a fistula, a small channel near his anus, resulting in great pain. Fistulas, much like the Wu-Tang Clan, ain't nothing to screw with. Eventually, the pain got so bad that he couldn't ride a horse, sit for long periods, which is kind of important when you're a king, or even make a bowel movement without regretting it immensely. The normal remedies were applied, enemas and poultices from morning until night with zero effect. Louis decided, you know what? Screw it. Let's go down the surgical route. Unfortunately for Louis, at the time, there was no surgical route. He hired a surgeon barber named Charles-Francois Félix and asked him to fix him. Not entirely stupid, and not willing to risk screwing up a novel surgery on the King of France, Félix requested six months to practice, which he did on prisoners. Live prisoners. Live healthy prisoners. Sometimes as many as four a week, in an era where antiseptics and anesthetics didn't exist. The success rates were about as you'd imagine, although at least some of the prisoners survived, and eventually Felix felt confident enough to perform the surgery on the king. And it worked! Within three months, the king was riding his horse like nothing had happened, and Felix was the talk of the town. People were desperate to emulate the king so badly that people who were entirely healthy would pay Felix to perform the surgery on them, and those less willing to suffer, or at least less willing to pay, would fake having the surgery, wearing bandages known as Les Royales to mimic the king, and pretend that they too were cool and with it, even though with it meant suffering from a painful condition of the anus. When Philip of Macedon had ravaged many Greek city-states, things were looking bad for Greece. He then turned his attention to Sparta, sending the doomed state a letter that read, You are advised to submit without further delay, for if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your city. The Spartans sent back a rather to-the-point reply. If. It's actually more cool even than that. That was the second message of that particular exchange. In the first, Philip asked the Spartans whether he should come to Sparta as a friend or as a foe. Their reply? Neither. Robert Liston, 1794-1847. A surgeon. In fact, he was described as, quote, the fastest knife in the West End, and could amputate a leg in 2.5 minutes. The faster the surgery, the more likely the recovery. Though during this particular amputation, he went so quickly he also removed his patient's testicles. However, he also amputated a man's leg in less than 2.5 minutes, who would later die of gangrene. In his haste, he accidentally cut off his assistant's fingers, who would later die from gangrene, and, apparently, cut through the coattails of a surgical spectator, who was so scared he died of fright, this becoming the only surgery with a 300% mortality rate. Was he performing a surgery with a broadsword or something? It's time for the most ambitious crossover in the world, the Battle for Schlossiter, or Castle Iter. If anyone told you that tankers from the 12th Armored Division of the United States fought alongside German Wehrmacht soldiers led by an SS Hauptsturmführer, as well as French POWs to defend a castle with a famous tennis player of the time, two former prime ministers of France, and Charles de Gaulle's sister, against an attacking force of the 17th SS Panzergrenadier Division, you'd have called BS upon BS upon BS. But that is exactly what happened. In a small castle near Itter in Austria, the high-profile prisoners were segregated in the latter part of the war. In May, a prisoner escaped with a letter to Allied forces, 
detailing the names and location of the high-value imprisoned French citizens. The first Allied unit he encountered was unable to effect a rescue, but started toward the prison before retreating back behind Allied lines. During this time, the head of the prison died under, quote, mysterious circumstances, and the second-in-command deserted, along with the host of SS guards. The prisoners, meanwhile, had taken over the prison and commandeered the arms left behind. In the nearby town, Wehrmacht troops, sick of the war and the Nazis, had deserted and formed a resistance unit that protected the citizens from Nazi hardline loyalists and SS retaliation. Major Joseph Sepp Gangel approached a unit of the 12th Armored under a flag of truce and requested aid. Captain John Lee agreed immediately, positioning his tanks at the city square as a show of force. Advised of the tenuous situation in the former prison, Lee set off with a number of tanks, but was unable to cross a small rickety bridge leading to Castle Itter with all his forces. He proceeded with this tank, the Bessiton Jenny, two squads of riflemen, Major Gangel, and a truck with a 10-man Wehrmacht cannoncocker crew. On the way, they encountered a group of SS troops attempting to blockade the road, who they promptly ventilated. Arriving at the castle, the captain and the major were greeted by the unlikely sight of French prisoners working side-by-side side with Hauptsturmführer Kurt Siegfried Schrader to shore up the castle defenses. The Motley crew was not best pleased with the, quote, rescue force that didn't even quite make up a full platoon, but were happy to see any reinforcement. Lee staged his tank at the castle entrance, and the POWs, the Wehrmacht, and the 12th armored crew deployed around the castle into defensive perimeter. The crap was on. The next morning, a Waffen-SS group numbering over a hundred launched their assault, one of the opening salvos destroying the tank that had been the heavy weapon support for the castle Aider defenders. The attack continued in waves, with probing during the night to find weakness in the defenders' lines. Even after being ordered by Captain Lee to seek shelter in the castle, the French POWs stayed on the front, pouring a heavy volume of fire at the attacking SS troops. Morning after pillbox, the following day opened bleakly, with sporadic gunfire continuing throughout the night, as well as repeated grenade blasts and 88mm cannon fire. The defenders were running low on ammo. Somehow, the telephone lines back to the nearby town had not been destroyed, and comms remained intact for the duration of the battle. Lee and Gangle called back for the reinforcements, and they arrived in the afternoon to stomp a mud hole in SS butt. The strangest battle of an insane war came to a close. It was five days after the Fuhrer died from self-inflicted high-velocity lead poisoning, and two days before the official surrender of Germany. When you subscribe, make sure to hit the bell to turn on notifications. Put the playlist on in the background to finish listening to all the stories linked at the top of the description. And if you like Am I the Genius, give Am I the Jerk a shot, linked in the description too. Either way, thanks a lot for watching, and we'll see you guys next time.